So what I find is, I don't know if it's European mothers, I don't know if it's mothers from that age, but so much of what you wrote in your book, um, like we were, my sisters and I were, we were raised Roman Catholic. So when you're talking about Good Friday and going to the stations, not the church, right? And there was so much of what you said, even about when we'll get into it, the Friday, the potato pancakes, we had what was called polenchinta, which was a thin, thin pancake. And it was basically, it didn't have potato in it, but it was made with literally like flour, sugar, water, and maybe an egg, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to let our listeners know that this is JCV Art Studio, and my name is Joanna, and this is season five. And both my guest and I, we're going to try to try to control our excitement because we're we're both excited to talk about his book, and it's an important topic. I think it's an important book. And uh, it's important for these time these times. I yeah. So you know we're we're in a world where some governments, not all, say we have free speech, but at the same time, I'm actually in, and I'll say in this day and age, looking and thinking, why are we banning books? Okay, uh, we live in a world where some governments are passing laws with respect to individual rights respecting our bodies and how we identify and see ourselves as individuals. And I think, and we live, we live in a free and democratic society, really. Okay. So first things first, June is ALS awareness month. And I'm mentioning this because I have a family member who is, um, he has ALS and, uh, he was diagnosed at age 30. So anyways, June is ALS Awareness Month. June is also Pride Awareness Month. And this is what we're going to talk about. So I have Dr. Roger Leslie with me, and he is a scholar in the fields of success and education. Through major literary houses, medium and small presses, and his own publishing house, Roger has published fiction and nonfiction books and multiple genres, historical fiction, inspiration, self-help, spirituality, writing and publishing. Oh, and, and if you're ever on, now is it Jeopardy? And you get, you pick movies, you want this guy on your team, okay? <laughs> His movie references, he will tell you who won, you, who won the Oscar 40 years ago. Anyways, <laughs> he's a teacher. He writes about teaching and librarianship. He has a biography, history. He's written it all. Now, Roger has won numerous national awards, including the Forward Book of the Year, the Ben Franklin Award, and Writer's Digest Number One Inspirational Book of the Year. At its inaugural event, Leslie received the Houston Literary Award for his body of work. Roger is in demand as a teacher, coach, and keynote speaker. He leads, and I should have asked him this, do you, is it fly or do you say yeah. 
F-L-Y. Roger? It's FLY. It's, it's fly. FLY. Yeah, we use it as an acronym. It's a FLY yeah. workshop. Okay. Meaning first last year courses, which are based on his blockbuster memoir, My First Last Year. He draws from decades as an author, editor, and I love this. And in response to a spiritual dream, Roger Leslie lived a year as if it were his last. God, God. Okay. So today, Roger and I, we're going to talk about his latest book, Light Come Out of the Closet, which launches today, June 6th. And for the listeners who will be hearing this podcast on Saturday, it's out now. So, Roger, welcome. I'm excited. Can you tell? <laughs> Thank you, Joanna. I'm excited as well. So before we dig down, can you give our listeners a teaser of what Light Come Out of the Closet is about? People have asked me why I waited this many decades to write about that early stage of my life, because it's a memoir that takes place from about the time I was 11 till I was 17. And as a writing coach, I tell my clients, you know, that it's a common adage to write what you know, but I really recommend write what you want to know. And so for so many decades, I thought back on this period of my life that I wrote about in this book as the dark night of my soul, and it always drew remembrances of pain. And I got the realization a few years ago that although that experience was painful, I probably owe that stage of my life to becoming the person that enabled me to live the life I dream and to have the courage to follow my own spiritual path, which is what my mission is to help other people do. So I wanted to revisit that stage of my life, not to re-experience the pain, but to find out what it had to teach me about my spiritual journey. Okay, so let's start. Let's start. You mentioned pain, and I think I said to you in an email, you have put your soul on these pages. But there's also humor. I find bits of humor in, in on these pages too. Okay, so you write, page one, that you always knew you were gay, even before you understood what that meant. Now I have to share a story. I want you to explain, explain that to our listeners. But it made me think of a story, a woman I used to work with, great lady, funny. Funny, funny, funny. And she had told me once that, uh, so she was very athletic. And um, in, I think it was grade eight, grade nine, one of the, 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 like the boys soccer team, or I think it was that, the boys soccer team, the coach said, I want you to come with us to help me coach this team. Like they were getting close to the finals. And she was saying that her mom was worried that, you know, she was going on this bus with a bunch of grade eight, grade nine boys. And this lady, she said to me, God, if my mother only knew, <laughs> my mother <laughs> only knew how that was, she had no worries about me being on a bus with a bunch of boys. Trust me. <laughs> right? You know, so. exactly. <laughs> Anyways, can you explain, how, how did you know that you were, because she was, like I said, grade eight, grade nine. So how did you knew that you were gay? Like, And you said, even before you understood what that meant. So even when I was a toddler, 
I remember identifying with women. I liked women. I thought what they talked about was more interesting. I thought their ability to go deeper in emotional conversations was more interesting than men. You know, when my dad got together with my uncles and other male friends, they talked sports, they talked politics, which didn't interest me at all. But when the women got together, because my mother would usually let me sit in so long as I was quiet, I could be near them. They would talk about relationships and they would talk about feelings and they would talk about deeper spiritual and interpersonal phenomena that were going on in their life, lives. And that fascinated me. And so when I was very young, I just thought, I guess I just must be much more mature than other boys because I knew that eventually boys turned a corner somewhere in puberty and they went from hating girls and teasing girls to be attracted to them. And so I thought, wow, I was just really proud when I was a kid. I thought, I must be just much more mature than the other boys. But then when I reached puberty and I realized that my feelings about women were not about wanting to be in relationship with them, but rather to identify more with where they were in their lives and how they saw the world, that's when I realized, oh, well, then maybe I'm just not so far advanced for my age compared to other boys. Maybe my orientation is different. So even though before I knew anything about sexuality, I sensed that my identification with women and my love of women had something to do with my personal identity and who I was to become as a man. Okay, okay. Awesome. Interesting. Okay. Now, I have to read. There's, you know, I was been reading your book, and I would come up with questions, and then I just thought, I'm just going to read a couple of the passages, because they say so much, you know, about what you've experienced. Okay, so I'm going to read a couple of uh, paragraphs from page four. And by the way, your references to Tony Orlando and Don, oh my God, knock three times. Don's <laughs> playing in my head. Okay. Oh, they were fantastic. Okay. So here, here we go. I'm, I want to, hopefully I won't mess this up. Here we go. I wanted no part of dance or sports. Instead, I loved visual and literary arts. I didn't just watch movies and television and read books. I studied them, then researched the background and process of developing anything creative. I wrote stories or designed scrapbooks of my favorite celebrities. I love developing all types of puzzles. I created my own word searches and crosswords. Once I decided I wanted a jigsaw puzzle featuring my favorite movie, the Poseidon Adventure. When no company manufactured one, I assembled a thousand-piece puzzle I had at home, turned it over my own. Whatever I loved, I immersed myself in so passionately, I didn't care how often others made fun of me. But it did lead me to perceive myself as different from other children. Boom. That last paragraph hit me, okay? I remember being teased in high school and in junior high, okay? And, uh, you know, getting on the school bus, good God. You know, that was, that could be either a fun experience or an adventure into hell, right? But the thing is, I so got that because 
when you could like lose yourself in your creativity. You know, I used to draw with uh, charcoal pencils. You know, it was the 80s. We had supermodels. So I would draw and illustrate these supermodels. And they didn't talk back to me. They didn't tease me. But I could just immerse myself into the creativity. So can you talk to me about this time in your life, this time period? When was, when, when was this kind of all going on? So this was going on when I was about 11 or 12 years old because the Poseidon Adventure came out and I first saw it when I was 11. Uh, so it was before that too, but that was the general gist of where my creativity went. And I liked that alone time. I loved that creative time. And so many media outlets inspired me to want to create myself. So at first it was like, I love to read books. And then soon it became, well, it's not enough to just read books. I want to write books. And then it wasn't enough to just watch movies. I wanted to study movies and understand them and maybe write for them one day myself. So that was the kind of activity that I could immerse myself in and not worry because I spent so much time alone. I didn't need to be to worry about being criticized or rejected. It's just like, this was what I loved. And as you were saying about the supermodels, I could immerse myself and love the characters in a movie or a TV show. I could love the actors. And since I didn't know any of them, I could just pretend that, wow, I love them and they would probably love me if they ever met me. But I never had to run that risk because I didn't expect to meet any of them. Yeah. And just the thing, your creativity, you know, you wanted a puzzle of the, the Poseidon adventure. So <laughs> part of me thinks, who thinks of that? Like, it's a great idea. Turn the puzzle over. <laughs> Do your own. I get it. Right. You know, <sighs> now you also write like on page eight, you write about Helen Reddy accepting her Grammy for I am woman. And I, I actually, I really like this. By thanking God because she makes everything possible. And that scene, your your mother's reaction. Okay, it, you right here, you know, so your I, your mother has just seen, I take it, Helen Reddy accept this Grammy, right? And, uh, you know, your mom, she says, they're going to hell, she told me, with the same acidity that she spat the identical statement when Helen Reddy accepted her Grammy for I Am Woman by thanking God because she makes everything possible. So how did you feel at that point? Like, you know, I'm, this is a different time now, so I have no problems with God being a woman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk to me about how you felt with your mother's reaction? Okay. So the context of that quotation, so mm -hmm. when Helen Reddy accepted her Grammy and she thanked God as a woman, my mother just expressed such a sense of disgust by that thought. And she said, she's going to hell. And then not long after that, I was up late one night, and this is in the book. I was up one night, late one night watching Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show, and he featured a lesbian wedding. And my mother had that same reaction to the lesbian wedding. Now, I didn't even really know. I was still very young, so I really wasn't really clear on everything. But the idea of two women being together like that just was so repulsive to my mother. 
And she made that same reaction to the wedding as she did to the Helen Reddy acceptance speech. That's when it hit home personally. I didn't have a connection to Helen Reddy and her idea of God as a woman. But I by that time, I already sensed I probably was not going to have a traditional marriage or relationship. And when she, her response was so visceral and so venomous, it scared me because I adored my mother and I wanted nothing more than my mother to love me. Yeah. And the idea that I could disgust her to that degree if she knew I was gay or I had inclinations to be with a man rather than a woman terrified me. I mm -hmm. just thought this is this, she was my world as a child. And the, th the thought of losing that and losing her love and respect just sunk me so deep into fear and depression because I thought if I don't have her as my connection, I have nothing. Yeah then I could see how now you feel like you're living with a secret that yes. you can tell nobody. Yes. And, you know, I have, you know, I've heard, I've heard many times. I don't, because I just, I make this statement. I do not believe in this statement. Okay. But i just want to say, I have heard many times people say, well, I don't have a problem with someone being gay, but why do they have to be so, out in the parades and stuff like this. And I'm like, what is your problem? What is your problem? Okay. Yeah. Um, I think you need to acknowledge this is just, this is who I am for your own. And now please correct me. Okay. For your own peace of mind. So you don't feel like a fraud. Okay, that you have to come, you have to, you have to come out. So you, you, you don't feel like you're something you're not. Am I anywhere in here with understanding? Absolutely, you are, Joanna. And what was particularly challenging for me at the time is I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And so even in media, there were not many samples of who or what gay people were. And I was not overtly effeminate. So that whenever they would show someone on TV who was overtly feminine and say, oh, that's a gay person, I thought, well, I don't identify with that person. I don't see my personality like that. And I wasn't attracted to people like that. So for me, it kept, it kept going back to, well, maybe I'm not. You know, maybe I don't know what I am. Maybe I don't know who I am because there weren't, there wasn't an array of different role models out there that I could identify with. It was either a very negative stereotype that the media was presenting or nothing at all. And so for the longest time, as I was trying to figure out who I was, I kept thinking, well, because those stereotypes didn't fit me, I kept questioning, well, maybe I don't know who I am. Maybe I'm not gay. Maybe it's just, you know, there's something, you know, and what made it even worse. And this, uh, this is a thought that I think is common for many people, which to me now seems so unbelievable that I would ever believe that. But I, for years, I thought, you know, I think I'm the only person in the world exactly like me. And I fed that thought for so long. And the saddest and most difficult part of it is not only was identifying with, with being gay a challenge, but to me, I automatically connected it with the thought, if this is true of me, then I can never love and I can never be loved the way I would want. So I just assumed that for the rest of my life, I was going to be alone. Oh, God. Now, I also, in your book, I, I want to make sure I don't jump ahead too far. Thinking about 
I remember there's a part in your book where you are going through, a, you're, you are depressed. You're going through a rough time. You're, you're feeling like I'm it. I'm the only one who's like this. Right. And then there's that scene. You're on the bleachers and the football player sits beside you. And I tell you, I'm reading that. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're reading your story and I just, I just thought, oh, God, you know, like what you're going through. And then that scene, I just thought, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. He knows he's not alone. Right? right? I had to throw that in there. You know, like I said, I, I didn't want to get too far ahead. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to talk about family a bit before we go further. Um and like I hinted at this earlier about when we first, you know, rolled on, like started talking. My mom, she was Hungarian. My father was Romanian, Hungarian. It had to do with where the borders were during the time they moved back and forth between Romania and Hungary. And uh, on Friday nights, we would have what was called Polincinta. And it's interesting because I'm reading your book. And you're mentioning how you have the potato pancakes because like we were raised Roman Catholic, you do not eat meat on Fridays, right? And then I thought, damn, that whoops, sorry. <laughs> That's why we always <laughs> ate polencinta, right? Like I totally <laughs> forgot. <laughs> so, talk to me, talk to me about your grandmother now. Is it Baca? Baca, yes. Yeah. And, talk and to here me. here's how she got that nickname. So when the grandkids first started showing up. The Polish word for grandmother is babsha. And one of the oldest grandchildren couldn't pronounce babsha. He pronounced it baka. And for some reason, that name stuck to the point where by the end of her life, nearly everybody just knew her as baka. And it's even that word is even on her gravestone because that's how everybody knew her. Now, baka was a character. She was one of the most vivid interesting people you would ever want to meet. She had all kinds of sayings that she would come up with. And we grandkids, you know, we didn't understand the context of a lot of it, but we understood the meaning. For example, we would get up and our hair would be all disheveled. And she'd look at us and she'd say, comb your wig. You look like Gilda Gray. <laughs> and we had no idea who Gilda Gray is. And I imagine your listeners don't either. She was a, a flapper in the 20s who was known for having wild, outrageous unkempt hair. So yeah. we figured out, we knew what she meant, but she was always coming up with funny sayings like that. And she was just a live wire. Now I do allude a little bit in the, in the book too. She had her dark periods too, because I, I don't, you know, I, I don't really know what precipitated all that, but my parents were really good about shielding us kids from the tougher things in the adult world. So we never saw that side of Bucca very much. We just knew her as wildly funny and energetic. And just, she was a, a strong, tall woman. So she was a powerhouse. And she was known for her potato pancakes. She could make the best thin potato pancakes, really crispy around the edges and everything. And of course we had that on Friday nights because we too were Roman Catholic and that's just yeah. what we did. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering, do you think our parents shield, like you said, shielding, you know, you and your brothers and sisters from like the darker moments of Baca? Do you think that I, I, sometimes I think when we grow up, we think 
our parents are totally invincible or our grandparents are invincible. But I think it's better if growing up as children, we know that they have stuff going on too. Do you think if if you had known that, that maybe it would have, would it have, maybe that's, would it have made things a little easier or a little different? I think it might've given me more of a perspective early on, but I realized, and I believe this is generational. I think my parents connected a lot of less than ideal scenarios as shameful. So I think part of the reason that they hid things were it's not only to protect us children, but because they didn't want other people to know about it because they felt a sense of shame and embarrassment. Which, of course, as a gay child, you could imagine what that did to me. It's just like, and in many ways, my parents, their entire life have still never acknowledged certain aspects of who I am to other people, just because I think it probably ties back to a sense of shame and imperfection when they were trying so hard to put on a good front and make a good impression to other people. Yeah, yeah. See, and I remember at one point um, in grade eight or nine, my mom's saying to me, just because a, a far, far, far family relative was getting a divorce. And my mom's saying, we don't talk about divorce. And I'm just like, okay. You know, like I was 13, 14. And I, I just, I remember thinking about it going into my grade, I don't know, grade nine, grade 10 English class. And I thought, okay, we don't talk about this. I don't know why. I don't see what the big deal is. Everybody, everybody's, everybody's doing it, right? Like, let's see, two people can't get along. Hey, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. That happens, right? <laughs> but then, you know, you're, you're 14, 15, you see some, you see a cute boy in class and phew, the thought's gone, right? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting though, is my mother was fluent in Polish, as was her mother, my bucka. So, we knew that adults talked about things because we always knew when something was going on that the kids, they didn't want the kids to know about, they just automatically switched to Polish. And we would get, you know, if we could catch a name of someone in that conversation, we kind of knew, oh, they were talking about this person. And if that person was kind of the black sheep of the family, it's like, oh, so they're sharing secrets and things like that. So I did have a sense that adults did, at least in private, talk about certain things, but it just wasn't appropriate to let them know that we let the kids know what was going on. And on the on the positive side of that, it really did feed my idealism because I've always been a very idealistic person. It's just like I can, you know, anything can happen. Anything's possible. And I got to stay innocent longer thanks to that, I think. And yeah. I appreciated that because there's a, there's a big part of my heart that's very still very joyful and very innocent. And I think I owe part of that to my parents shielding me from a lot of the harsher elements of the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was a different time. It was such a different time, you know, Yes, I, I was growing up, I was in school, in elementary school in the seventies and it was just such a different time, right? Yeah. Okay. Now you write about your relationship with God and you, you write that he, you, you felt that he could never reciprocate or even relate to the need I felt for him. As I understood it in my youth, love was not reciprocal, but needy and insecure. And you write about loneliness. And uh, this is just another one, which I, I really do 
I have to, I have to read if you don't mind. And then, you know, you can talk to me about it. In distant retrospect, I can see now that it wasn't just realizing that I was gay that made me consider killing myself as a teen. Until I reached puberty, I didn't appreciate the, the vacas, I'm sorry, uh, is, am I pronouncing that right? The vacas need of vacuous. escape. Vacuous need of escape. At the time, the reckless and unforgiving 1970s, accepting that I was gay also required acknowledging what I thought my world said about how wrong and sick and cursed I was. That painful realization sometimes numbed me into an emotional paralysis and more often set a fire in my soul to flee from life, from myself, and mostly from God. I did it. I was telling myself last night I had to read that paragraph and not break down. Okay. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about that, Roger. So from my earliest days, it was always important for me to please the adults in my life. I wanted nothing more than my parents and my teachers to be proud of me. And I connected that to my wanting God to be proud of me. And so I I did, you know, I was a good boy. I, I, you know, I didn't break rules. I never gave my parents any reason to be concerned or, you know, give them any trouble. I was not rebellious at all. I never had, a, I, I don't think I ever had a rebellious streak. And I wanted to do everything perfectly. So if they set a rule, I followed it. I'm, you know, I made great grades. I, you know, wanted to make good impressions on my teachers. And I didn't even care if my my peers in school thought I was nerdy or, or you know, kind of uninteresting because of that. That That's what mattered to me. I realized as a, a sen- sensitive person I really wanted an emotional connection to some of those adults in my life. And whether it's cultural or whether it's ethnic or whether it's generational, I didn't get that feedback from the adults in my life. My, my, the adults in my life were not physically affectionate. They did not express verbally their affection. So it felt very one-sided. I felt like I wanted to get closer and they wouldn't let me closer. There was just this, there was a, an emotional distance there. And so it felt like okay my job was to do everything i could to to please my parents my teachers and god but that didn't necessarily result in my feeling affirmed and loved my parents were proud of me for my good grades they affirmed me often and they were very compassionate in that way but as far as affection goes and physical demonstration of affection it just was almost non-existent in my childhood mm-hmm. and i made that connection with god it's just like okay my job then is to please god but it will not necessarily result in god expressing in any way or giving me any sign that I am loved or lovable in return. It was a one-way relationship. And I didn't know what to do with that because it left me feeling empty. Yeah. Well, I could imagine you'd be thinking, okay, well, is God even going to accept me for who I am? Right? Oh, oh, And and the answer was always no, because what I was learning 
in my, you know, I went to Catholic school. So I was, you know, in parochial school, I was in catechisms. I was learning from my parents based upon the reaction that my mother had to certain things on television. It's like, the answer was always no. You know, if God, you know, if God, if I acknowledge myself as gay, God, my parents would hate me. My teachers would be disappointed in me and God would hate me too. And I couldn't live with myself as a result. And I think that's what spiraled me down into the depression that led me to have some suicidal thoughts. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I'm just thinking the messaging, the messaging that's out there. And, and at that age, you know, and like there, there's, I could understand why there was times in, because you were, attending school that was run by nuns okay, yes right okay i have a good friend my critique partner caroline who went to a private school that was run by nuns <laughs> she's probably going oh <laughs> um you had you had like a, some good maybe some not good experiences um that'd be that'd be tough that would be so I'm just thinking about how you are trying to navigate, navigate living in this world with that mixed, with that messaging. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Well, one way I did that, and one thing I would really like to encourage your listeners to focus on is creativity. Yeah. You know, I decided early on that I wanted to be a writer. And so I could fuel a lot of my confusion, a lot of my frustration, a lot of my fears into the characters that I was writing because I started writing stories and screenplays when I was in eighth grade or in ninth grade. And in a few of the screenplays that I was writing in my head, and then sometimes I even got down on paper throughout ninth grade, some of those characters were suicidal. And I realized in retrospect that I was filtering some of my own angst and and thanks to the creative process, I was able to diffuse some of the pain of that by moving it to, to the character and out of my own heart, which helped me deal with it. And when I reread what I'd written, it helped me process it a little bit because I could look at it a little bit objectively and think, oh, this isn't my depression. This isn't my su suicidal thought. This is this character's. How would the character get out of this? How would the character make his life better? So I could actually divest myself a little bit of the immediacy of the pain and work through it through my creative process. So however a person is creative, whether it's a visual art or dance or writing or whatever it might be, I think there's a lot of therapy that goes on, independent therapy where we can work through stuff on our own just by living with and acting upon our creative impulses to, to make something beautiful. That's awesome. That is awesome. Because as you're talking, I'm thinking therapy. And like you, you said, you're putting the pain with the, on the page with the characters. And so then in a way, you can kind of stand back and assess what's going on. Hey? Yes. Yes. Oh. And process, process it a little bit with a little bit of objectivity. Because at the time, I thought I couldn't tell anybody. There was no one I could yeah. just, I, you know, as I mentioned in the book, I had several friends in my latter middle school years. And 
I liked smart people. I just liked mm-hmm. to hang around smart people. And it occurred to me that once I was figuring myself out and I knew for sure that I was gay, I had smart friends. They were going to figure it out too. So as I mentioned in the book, one by one, I just got rid of every friend. I just, to the point where I was by myself throughout ninth grade, I didn't connect with anybody until the very end of that ninth grade year. Gee, gee. Oh God, the uh, the loneliness, Roger. I just, yeah, the loneliness. You know, yet in your writing, before you get to your teen years, you write about this one incident. I just realized I was going to ask you this earlier with your family dog, Bonnie. Yeah. And you were feeling not loved. Yes. And you you had decided you had, you were you had how, how far I'm trying to remember now how far you went, but you were going to run away with your family dog Bonnie yeah. because you knew she yes was a dog owner. My heart just went. <laughs> but you're you're you didn't run away. No, did I didn't. You? My 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 dad found the note the night before I was going to leave, and he sat me down and he reframed it for me. And and I I really like the scene, so I don't want to talk too much about it because I think readers will appreciate it. But I had a very fixed idea of how that scene would go because I'd seen that scene in many sitcoms like the Brady Bunch when Bobby was going to run away. And I really thought, oh, this is going to turn out so well. I'm going to be so embraced and loved and they're going to remind me how I'm just so needed and, and loved in this household. And that wasn't how my conversation with my father went at all. And again, it was just like, it's sort of, it was a sobering experience because I realized, oh, I kept wanting to make my life as ideal as a sitcom or as a, as a really inspiring movie and nothing in my reality turned out that way. But yes, I connected with Bonnie. She was my best friend during that time. At at one point, she was my only friend at the time. And so my Friday evenings, I would take her for a walk around the neighborhood and the two of us would just hang out together. Some of the most heartfelt and beautiful moments of my childhood, I spent just walking Bonnie around our neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking to a dog, a dog, a person who loves dogs. I have two. And so far, knocking wood, Roger, they're still quiet. They're still sleeping. (laughs) But. I remember I'm going a little bit off topic here, but I remember through the pandemic, I was working at home. And uh, the first thing was it was the Internet was cutting out for my connection from home to work. And I was dropping some not nice words. Okay, and I know my we were in a loft and my spouse down below had said to me, do you talk like that at work? <laughs> I just said, <laughs> I have an office door at work, <laughs> right? Which I can close, you know? And I just remember I had dropped one word and uh, the older dog, honestly, you know, kind of came up and sat by my feet. Oh, and I'm, I yeah. looked at him. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll chill out, right? I'm, I'm okay. And I kept working. And then something else went and I said another not good, nice word. And so then he starts pawing my lap, right? <laughs> and I went and I scooped him up. I put him on my lap. I'm still trying to, you know, figure this problem out. And I said something a third time. And then he just like looked up at me, you know, as he's on my lap. And so I start petting him. I'm like, right, okay, that's enough. Yes, I'll get it together, <laughs> right? Aren't they, dogs the best? Um, oh, I just love dogs. Yeah, yeah. So 
you're, we were, were kind of leaning towards your days in school, in high school. Can you tell me about Mrs. Erlingus? Because um, she comes across as being very tuned into you. You know, yes. um, she starts noticing, like she says to you, you're so quiet. You seem like a sad little boy. She was pretty tuned in. And, yes, and she was. Talk to me about her. So in grade school, uh, I had a friend named Linus. Linus Erlingus was one of my best friends at the time. And we did a field trip to see the movie Sounder. So this would be 1972, maybe early 73. And she was one of the mothers who volunteered to go on this field trip with us. And she drove. So Linus and two of our friends sat in the back seat. And I sat in the front seat between Mrs. Erlingus, who was driving, and another adult chaperone. So I sat in the middle in the front seat because by that time I had withdrawn a whole lot and I wasn't really connecting with my peers at all because I was hiding. I didn't want anybody to know who I was or what I was thinking or feeling. And she was the one who, because I was so quiet sitting next to her, she noticed that I wasn't interacting much with the other boys. And that's when she turned to me and said, I seemed like such a quiet sad little boy. And the reason that moved me so much is I didn't get that kind of insight, that emotional connection with the people in my own family. There was just an emotional distance there among all the family members as I saw it. Now, I could have other relatives who would disagree, perhaps, I don't know. But from the way I was seeing things, you know, I could seem upset or sad or depressed. And some adult figure would tell me, you know, get over it. You know, you're bringing the house down. Just, you know, buck up and move, do better. Yeah. Instead of, wow, there might be actually something really deep going on with this this child. And mm-hmm. she saw that. We didn't explore it any further because that was the only interaction I ever had with her. But it really moved me that she actually sensed my sadness. And I'd never had anybody tell me that before. So although I thought it was a sad statement about me at the time, it really did make me feel like there was possibly a, a, a chance for me to connect with people. Maybe somebody would care if I was sad and they would care to want to know why I was sad. And she gave me that hope. And so I'll be forever grateful for that one tiny moment that made such a big impact on my life. So do you think it was almost like and she was that one statement, I'm thinking as an adult that it was like an olive branch so she made that statement, but she didn't push it, leaving it to you. If you wanted to explore further, do you think maybe that? Yes. Did that? Yes, did I, that... I do. I do believe that. Now, in the context, we were sitting in the car. So there were five, six of us in the car, mm-hmm. two adults and four kids. So that wasn't the place to do it. But even further, and I don't write this in the book, but we went to see the movie Sounder the one person who responded most compassionately to what happened to those characters was Mrs. Erlingus. Her heart was just open to what happened, especially when the the warden at the jail pokes the the cake and ruins it when the when the the son brings the cake to his dad in jail. I sat near her during the movie and I heard her gasp audibly at that. She was such a compassionate loving woman. I just was so moved by her. And it gave me hope that there could be people out there who would care and did, you know, would be compassionate if I ever shared with them. And I never had the opportunity or I never took the opportunity to 
explore anything further with her because that was it. That was the time when I was eliminating all my friends and Linus was one of the friends that I thought he's going to figure this out. I better just stop hanging around him because he's going to know who I am and I couldn't face it yet. So I, I lost my friendship with him and it was my doing. I was yeah. the one who was responsible for losing all those friends. I did that deliberately out of fear. I was just going to say, um, I'm, if you look, I'm, I'm scribbling down notes here. Like as a form of, I've written here, like self-preservation, protection. Um, you know, if you have, I'm thinking if you have the control of distancing the relationship, then it's almost like you're not waiting or you're not living in fear of thinking about when they may push you away from them. Like, it, yes. it, do you, yeah? yeah. Absolutely. Okay. That was it. Yes. Okay. I like, I'm like I said, as you're talking, I just scribble down a couple of notes here. Okay. So I mentioned about high school and you're writing, you're writing in this book. This book hit me and it's, it's your story and it's your writing and how it's written, you know, um, there's another, there's so many, so many, <laughs> I've got so many pages that I've marked, you know, um, you write about starting high school and you say, obsessing over my fear of change felt like taking short breaths as water filled my lungs. Oh gosh. That's a beautiful sentence. It's Thank it's uh, I I feel I uh, my heart goes oh, but I'm thinking that is a beautiful sentence. You know, like just you you could feel that fear being suffocating. Okay, is is that what it was? It's, it's like talk to me. So you're 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 pushing away your friends. How was high school? <laughs> I know what high school was like for me. <laughs> <laughs> so. My freshman year was by far the toughest year of my life. I had gone to the same school from first through eighth grade. So I was with the same peers all those primary years. We didn't have like an elementary school and a middle school where you switched and you got to be with different people. So around the same 30 or 40 students, I was that was my peer group from the time I was six years old till I was you know, 13, 14. And so the... The idea of having to go to a different school for high school just terrified me because I'd made such a mess of the end of my grade school years because I you know, pushed everybody away. I didn't have any friends. So there were a few friends that I had in grade school that were going to be going to the same high school I went to. Not many, but a few. But I'd already, I'd ruined those friendships because I pushed them away. So I spent that whole summer in fear. Every Sunday I'd go to church and I all I could think of with this tough, gooey, tugging dread, oh my gosh, I'm one week closer to having to start the the new school. And I, I was, I was, it was an awful experience for me because I made it awful. I just was so withdrawn and so scared of everything and everybody. The one saving grace that I do talk about in the book is that I excelled in English. That was my favorite class. I was excellent in it. I was so lucky that teacher who taught my English class first period where I excelled was also my gym coach for fifth period, which I 
detested. Yeah. It was just a nightmare for me. So I, it, there was always that sense of, oh, well, at least he knows I'm not a loser in every way because he's got me first period and he knows well, how good I am in English. So that was a little bit of a saving grace for yeah. that. But I just, I just handled it so poorly. I didn't know any better. And I didn't know how to reach out to anybody to get help. Well, well but the thing is, you, you look at your age, you look at what you're dealing with, you look at the times, you look at the messaging that you're seeing. No, you're have, like, yeah, cut yourself some, <laughs> give yourself some stuff, cheese. High school, school is normally, but... You also had, you had, some, you were dealing with a lot, right? Yes, I was. Dealing with a lot, you know? Yes. And um, as I was reading, I was thinking to myself, you know, when you were mentioning about withdrawing and just totally tuning out in class, I then started to think about, okay, the kids who I remember in class. And I was thinking about the ones who zoomed out. And then I'm sitting there as I'm reading, and I thought, you weren't mean to anybody. Were you mean to anybody? You know, like I'm thinking about my own. No, because because you were the one who was doing. Like I remember one one grade, grade five. Oh my God, David Reginato, sweet boy, sat behind me in um, science class, and I was bombing out horribly. And this portion of you know we had to learn chemistry and all those terms, you know, chemistry, zoology, all this stuff. And, you know, where you, you'd write the, the quiz and then you'd hand it to the kid behind you to to mark. Yes. And I remember he, he I, I, as we're marking and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I, like I know I have the wrong answers. Right. <laughs> and then David Reginato behind me, he spoke up and he said, could this answer be possible for like question 18? And the science teacher, she said, no, right? And then David, and I'm just like, oh, thanks, David. You know, and then uh, David Reginato, when he gave me my paper back, I think I got three out of 20. Like I mm. bombed on this quiz. And, I, and David gave us it back to me. He goes, I tried, Joanna. Anyways, okay. Like I say, all these memories came, like, yeah. came back to me, right? And you mentioned about gym class, and oh God, Dave Roger, I remember gym, and it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. I remember thinking to myself, I was happy when they put me in the goal as goalie in soccer because I didn't really get a lot of like there wasn't really a lot of action our way, and when with the ball did come. Most of the times I could stop it, right? Like I would just throw my body in front of it and stop it, right? So they thought, okay, we'll keep Joanna in goal. And I'm just like, <laughs> no, I won't have to run up and down that field, okay? <laughs> and I remember with baseball, I hated baseball, absolutely paranoid that I was going to get a ball in the teeth, right? And they put me way out in left field. And I'm just like, you really think I'm going to catch that ball when the <laughs> shock from the other team got up? And I swear, he just looked, right? Like, that's where I'm going, right? And I'd be like, I'm not going to be able to catch it. I'm not going to be able to catch it. I'm absolutely <laughs> petrified of that ball, okay? Yes, yes. <laughs> it is going to hit the 
ground <laughs> before I dare put my hands up like this across my legs. <laughs> this scene in class, in gym class, it must have been an awful experience, but I saw some of the humor in it because of some of the stuff I went through. That's why I yeah. was mentioning that. Okay. Yes. I'm not laughing at you. I just, I could so relate, you know, and, and you're right about, you know, high school, gym class, during stick hockey, I ran a lot as far away from the puck as I could. I focused on two objectives, staying on the opposite side of the gym from the action and <laughs> waiting for the coach's whistle to end my misery. <laughs> God. <laughs> But Joanna, here is something interesting that I talk about in the book that happened in that gym class, which taught me something new about myself that was positive. So there was a time when we played volleyball. And so I just stood in the middle, you know, we divided into four teams. And then so two groups were playing against each other. And two of the best athletes, of course, were the captains of these two teams. And I put myself right in the middle around a lot of other people thinking, well, I'm just not going to do anything. And if the ball comes near me, somebody surely is going to hit it. <laughs> and I, when it did head my way, I just stood there. I mean, I yeah. was, I was defiantly sure I was not going to even try to, to hit the ball because I knew I would humiliate myself. Yeah. So I just stood there and the captain of our team came up to me red faced and he looked right at me, you know, close to my nose. And he said, when that ball comes to you, you hit the ball, you hit the ball. And I sensed a willfulness in me and a sense of defiance that was a sense that that I translated as strength that I didn't know I had. I didn't know I could be so willful. I didn't know I could be so defiant. And that really was empowering. Of course, it was an awful experience in the moment because yeah. the, the team captain was mad at me and we lost the point and everything. And it was my fault. But I was so certain that I did not want to be there playing that game that I didn't care what anybody said to me. I was just firm in how I felt. And that was one of the first times when I thought, wow, I can stand up for myself. Yeah. I didn't know I could. I just thought I was kind of you know, needy and emotional and wishy-washy because that's how many of my family members thought of me. It's like, oh, Roger, you're so sensitive and everything. But it's like, wow, there's a side to me that can be really stubborn. And there's a side to me that can be defiant if I want to be. And that was a revelation to me. I thought, I can, I need to capitalize on this and explore this side of me. There may be more strength in me than I knew. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, Mrs. Collings, Mrs. Collings, she was another person who had an impact on your life. Can, yes. you, can you talk about her? She was my senior English teacher. I, I was in the honors class for English, and she was my senior honors teacher. And by that time, I had been writing quite a bit. And I shared my writing with some of my other English teachers over the time. And one, Miss McClendon, was very loving and very supportive. But the things I shared with her were just short pieces. I did poetry or stories. But then I shared with other teachers, and they would read a few pages, give it back to me, and they said, you know, you use a thesaurus, don't you? It was too distracting. I couldn't read your writing. And it just was really disheartening. Mrs. Collings was the opposite. 
she took such an interest. I wrote my first book when I was in her class. That was that was the goal I set for my senior year. I thought before I get out of high school, I want to write my first book. And so I wrote a book while I was a senior in high school and I shared it with her. And she not only read the book on her own time, but she invited me to her office on her lunch hours and used her lunch hours to talk about my book with me and talk about the symbolism. She saw a lot of the symbolism that I had, some of the biblical allusions that I was using. She was seeing things in the book that I didn't, you know, didn't know anybody else would notice or would care about. Yeah. And even though I had a long way to go as far as developing my skill in writing, her interest impacted me so tremendously that I really appreciated. So that's the positive element of the the positive impact that Mrs. Collings had on my life. That's so good. And teachers, such an important role. I mean, that's what students see for how many hours of the day. And they just, you know, I interviewed a teacher for a children's book last week. And I literally, I, I said to her, I wish I was in your kindergarten class, you know, because in the message that's like, personally, I think every adult should be in this woman's kindergarten class because she talked about listening. And she said, we'll share our story. Each individual will share their story, but we will have 19 people listening. You you speak once, you listen 19 times. And I just thought, wow, I think adults need to. (laughs) Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now you were mentioning how finding that strength, you know, uh, you mentioned about volleyball and, and just starting to feel that strength. I have been told at times that I was oversensitive, okay? For a while there, I thought it was, um, I thought it was like a a negative, a negative character trait that I was oversensitive, okay? And uh, the other thing that struck me was in, in your book, you mentioned about being oversensitive and not having a backbone. I think, Coming out to your parents, that takes guts. Roger, that takes guts. And no one should ever say anything to you. I think for your own soul, for your own survival, to find peace, you need to do that. What how what what do you think with with what I'm with with the comments I'm mentioning? So what I find is unique in my story compared to many other gay people that I've talked to is that I came out to my parents before I even came out to the world. I mean, it's just like before I ever did anything, before I ever met another person, before I ever explored the possibility, before I ever found out where gay people might congregate so I could go there and meet them, I sat down with my parents and I told them that I was gay. And I told them I haven't done anything about it. But I waited to the point where I was certain that I would. Because for many years, I just thought, well, maybe I'll never do anything about this. Maybe I'll just be alone the rest of my life. But by that time, I was a senior in high school, and I just decided I am going to explore this. And I didn't want my parents to find out through a third party somehow where someone mentioned something. So I thought, I'm going to sit down and tell them before I ever explore this. And I did. And it was a terrifying experience, especially knowing or at least remembering some of the the experiences I had as a child with how my mother especially responded to gay people. It was it was a it was a terrifying yeah. evening. It yeah. was. 
but you did it. You did it. I did it. Yes. But the, the interesting, one interesting element of it, of course, is I sat them down. And as I mentioned in the book, I sat on the floor and kind of barricaded myself behind the coffee table, just kind of for a little bit more security. My dad was on the couch. My mother was in the recliner. And I, you know, I told them I needed to talk to them about something. And then I just had the hardest time starting that conversation. And eventually my mother said, what, are you gay? It's like, so I don't know how long she knew. I knew she knew for a long, a while because I had hinted at it enough. There were certain things that I had said or done that I, I knew my mother suspected for a long time, but my father's response to that comment by my mom led me to believe that they never talked about it to each other. Okay. Even, even though she knew for years or suspected for years, she never said a word to my father because my dad responded so differently as if he had no clue whatsoever, which told me a lot about them and their generation and how they, you know, I didn't know at the time, but it should have told me something about their long-term response to who I am as a gay man. Yeah. I, th I think of family dynamics. And I think your book, it is about courage. It is about being honest to yourself. It, it, is that one of the messages you wanted to get across for your, with your book about being honest with yourself? And yes, absolutely. And the spiritual journey. I had to learn to distinguish between the rules and the dogma that I was raised with and the truth of who I was and what that really said about me. Because it wasn't until I got honest with myself and realized who I was and decided I am going to find love, I am going to explore who I am and 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 lo love myself and love my life, that I was able to really come out of my own closet. My light finally shone. And it gave me everything. I mean, it, it, it fueled all my experiences as a classroom teacher, which were some of the best years of, uh, I've ever experienced, it gave me the the impetus to write so many so many books on so many topics. It just helped me find my soul, and it is about the courage to acknowledge and come to terms with ourselves, because it's always about relationship with ourselves more than any other relationships. How are we relating to ourselves? And then, because when my relationship with myself, when I, with my relationship with myself changed, that's when I started to perceive God differently. Okay. And in my mind, God became more loving and understanding because I started to be willing to be compassionate and understanding with myself. Okay. Huge difference, huge difference. So... Would you say with being compassionate and honest with yourself, not trying to get the acceptance from others? Like just, yes. yeah. You okay. don't need it. When, you, when, you're, when you're at peace with yourself, I believe, when we are at peace with ourselves, we draw to us people who are compassionate and loving because that's what we're giving out. And until we get compassionate and loving to ourselves, we really don't know how to do it effectively for other people. I really think that everything we see in other people is just a mirror of what's going on in ourselves. So in this book, you know, when I was noticing so many judgmental comments and so many hurtful things, that's because that's how I was processing it for myself. I was judging myself for being less than. I was judging myself for being inadequate to God. 
And it wasn't until I transformed my own perceptions that I started seeing there were really many supportive people that I could probably have told what my journey really was. And they would have been so good for me and to me and supported me so that that dark night of my soul didn't have to last as long as it did. Have you written all that down? Because that is, I'm just just listening and I'm like, that's so true. That is so true. This is one of the really cool things I'm finding with my podcast is it's like the podcasts, you know, like there are more podcasts will come, but I have listeners who will listen to podcasts that I recorded six months ago, you know, and I have no rhyme or reason which ones get picked. I had episode 98 listened to like two days ago. And I'm like, that is so cool right? That people are going almost like back. Thinking of the listener who six to eight months from now listens to this podcast, what have been some of the most important moments in your life with respect to coming out? The most important moments are the ones where I decided to come to terms with things for myself, with myself. I didn't seek it from somebody else. I didn't go to other people and say, can you find some good in me? Or am I lovable? That's something that I had to decide for myself. And so it really is an inward journey, deeper and deeper into yourself until you come to terms with who you are. And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be just for gay people. We all have elements of ourselves where we think, well, we're lacking in that. You know, We're not pretty enough. We're not fit enough. We're not smart enough. We're not successful enough. All of that is just a perspective and we can choose a different perspective. I often use the the analogy of a prism. The life is like a, a diamond, a prism, and we are each seeing the world through one facet of the prism. If we can shift the prism and look at the world through another facet, we see everything differently, including ourselves. Like, because sometimes I feel, and I'm just as guilty, that I'm trying to seek validation. No, stop trying to seek it. See it in yourself, right? Yes, because it's already there. It's yeah. all you were. You were created after the likeness and in the image of God. So you were. You come to this world, perfect specimen of what you can be, meant to fulfill a mission in this life, and our job is to come to terms with that and then figure out, okay, what is my mission in life? And let me do it 100%. Yeah. And that's the thrill of the journey. Yeah. That is the excitement. That is the challenge. That is the conflict, the inner conflict that goes on. But overcoming that conflict and coming to terms with that is such an exhilarating process when, we, when we're willing to go there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I feel so good. I feel good. <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> okay. So. Last question. What has been one of the most important lessons you've learned from your students when you were a classroom teacher? This I thought was so cool. I So I'd, I'd, I'd finished the questions with your book and I saw your Facebook page and I thought, wow, he has posted the lessons he has learned from his students. And I thought that it was so cool. So I thought I'm going to ask him. You know, if you can't narrow it down to one lesson, what are that's why I said lessons. What are some of the important lessons you've learned from your students? 
I owe to my students whom I love with all my heart, finding out what I'm capable of being and doing in relation to other people. They brought out the best in me in ways that no other experience ever did. When I was with them, they were so open and loving and eager to learn that they just inspired me to want to keep giving my best and doing better and better. So I owe to them, my students, my beautiful, loving students, the realization of becoming Mr. Leslie. I love being Mr. Leslie. You know, there are people now that I have my PhD and everything, people are just like, well, do we need to call you Dr. Leslie and everything? I love when I run into former students and they just call me Mr. Leslie because that image of who I am as Mr. Leslie is me at my best. They brought out the very best in me. And that happens when you're around young people because they're so eager to learn and they love life and they're curious and they have so much ahead of them. So I just want uh, the biggest lesson I think I learned is if you open yourself to love, people are so willing to love you and support you. And that's where you find the fuel and the energy to give your very best and fulfill your mission in this life. Well, Mr. Leslie. <laughs> this has been a fantastic podcast. I really appreciate I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your vulnerability. As I said, your soul are on these pages, and I am so glad you have shared your story because I think it's a story that w this world needs more of. And I wish you, you so much success in whatever form that may take with your with with your book. Thank you so much. And I just want to encourage your readers always to live the life you dream and have the courage to follow your own unique spiritual path. People, light come out of the closet by Roger Leslie. It is available. It is available. It is available now. Check it out. Pick it up. It's available everywhere. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Joanna. <laughs>